Well, welcome everybody to the Progressive Worship Podcast from Sacred Eyes. Uh, today in this episode of the podcast, I'm talking to a dear friend who I've never met in person, and I hope one day to rectify that, but I've met a few times online and we've been communicating online for, I don't know, Years. a decade, I would say. Yeah. Uh, maybe even pushing close to two decades. Yeah. And uh, her name is Marsha McPhee. Uh, Marsha is what I would like to be as a ritual artist when I grow up. <laughs> Just takes everything I do to a completely new level. And my work has been so deeply informed by Marsha and the Worship Design Studio. Uh, whenever I get my hands on anything that she's written or anything she's doing, I grab hold of it because I learn so much and it inspires me. I don't think I know anybody who inspires creativity the way you do, Marsha. So I'm so grateful you've agreed to be my first guest on the podcast. So thank you for that. <laughs> it's not really much of an honor, but thank you. And my pleasure. <laughs> I'm just going to hand over to you to say hi and tell us a little bit about yourself and introduce yourself better than, than I can. Sure, John. It's so great to be talking to you. As you said, we have had this online relationship for a very long time. And uh, likewise, you know, the feeling is mutual. Your poetry is really how I first, how we first connected because I wanted to highlight some and utilize some of your poetry in one of my worship series. And, uh, and so I first fell in love with your artistry, your poetic artistry. And of course, you take it in many different directions. And I just love talking with you because it's just, it's like mind candy, you know, we get to really talk about some things that matter deeply to us. And so I'm, I'm, I'm glad to be part of this. Um, I think briefly what I can say about, uh, about myself and my journey is that I, I started uh, in my adult life as a professional musical theater and dance uh, person and toured the world uh, with companies and just a great deep love of theater, love of connecting with an audience. All of that was really important to me. And then I began to be very um, interested in and studying social justice issues. You know, I was a young person in my 20s in sort of the Cold War era. And so I was very involved in uh, peace and justice and began to see or ask the question, how can my artistry address these issues. And having grown up in the United Methodist Church, um, I saw some avenues for creating um, performances, creating pieces, and then eventually creating liturgy that would really address from a faith perspective uh, these very, very important issues. And so it really grew from wanting to make the world a better place. That is the bottom line, and that's sort of the bottom line now, uh, decades later. Uh, because I've been doing this now for almost 30 years, uh, which is a little scary <laughs> to say. <laughs> so um, so that's really where it came from. I went to seminary to get a theological undergirding for this work, uh, and then a PhD in liturgical studies, worship, and ethics. And, uh, you know, oftentimes people say, what? You, you, you did a PhD in worship and ethics? What does that have to do with each other? But it's that bottom line, Absolutely. making the world a better place and doing that through ritual artistry. So that's really where it, it grew. Uh, worship Design Studio officially started with podcasts in 2008, so 15 years ago this year. Um, 
And we, uh, I began with just sort of interviews, uh, podcasts before people were doing podcasts. I really was just doing it on GarageBand and then throwing it up on a, on a, you know, a homemade website. And what was amazing is that there were people who flocked to this and it was really just, we were talking about what's coming up in the liturgical season coming up, what's in the lectionary. And I started to get thousands of people listening to this thing. And I thought, wow, there's a, a real hunger for worship that is deeply meaningful, that's connected to the issues of our day. Um, and that testifies to that from a faith perspective. Um, and so that was the beginning of Worship Design Studio. And from there, I've just developed it into many different kinds of materials. Uh, and I'm I'm just so thrilled that it's been a help to churches, uh, especially pastors who wear all the hats and they need some inspiration for um, how to create worship. That's what I call mm -mm good, meaningful and memorable. That's my byline, right? Mm -mm yeah. Good worship. And um, so that's really how it all developed. And I'm, I feel so grateful to, to have been given the opportunities to do that. Wow. That's a great story. Uh, you know, my my journey is of being in the pastorate, um, mm -hmm. also being a musician and and then evolving into being a writer. Um, and so had the, the, the theological undergirding from that. Mm -hmm. But in my training, in terms of liturgy, in four years of theological training for my 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 bachelor of theology degree we had one 45 minute lecture about literature <laughs> that was it that was it no yeah. training to speak of at all and and i began to see that there was something being missed not just in my training but but the the knock-on effect of that in, in practice in churches here in south africa where i live as i began to engage with people online from about 2004, 2005 was when I started doing that. Um, I was hearing the same feedback from people in other parts of the world. Uh, right. and, I, and I realized that we're missing such a, the same thing. If we're going to change the world, in many ways, it's going to begin with what we do with our ritual artistry, with, with our liturgy. with. Right. Uh, and I, I often think the sanctuary is the fountainhead that affects the rest of our lives. Um, that's right. That's right. Yeah. I would say, John, that, you know, that's pretty common in the United States in terms of how we train seminarians. They may have one semester of worship wow. in their, you know, in their entire learning career. And in one semester, you can barely get the history and theology of worship, much less teach people how to actually put it together, right. you know, and that's usually what suffers is the, the actual nuts and bolts of how do I do this? Wow. And what's ironic is that of everything that you do as a pastor, Sunday comes around every week, <laughs> like clockwork, yeah. and you have to have something to, you have to have something put together. And so the fact that we don't train people in this thing that's going to be just week in and week out is is really surprising. Yeah. Uh, and so I think that's why you and I have both found so many people hungry for going deeper in these skill sets. Right, right. And I guess that brings us to the thing that I really want to be the focus of our conversation is the interface between worship, ritual art, ritualizing in general, 
uh, and the, the impact of what worship can be in the lives of people. I often talk about worship as the primary form of discipleship for most mm -hmm. people because uh, I don't have studies or statistics to back it up, but in my experience, most people, their only spiritual practice in the week is 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 the Sunday service. And for some people, that's their only practice. In a, They'll be there once a month, and that's their only spiritual practice right. for the month. Yeah. And so that there's that on the one side. On the other side is, you know, there's lots happening in the world around worship. Uh, but most of it is coming out of a, a theological place that in some cases is anti anything that connects with social justice. Uh, in many cases is rooted in a, a fairly literalistic, maybe even fundamentalist view of scripture uh, and a theology that is, in my experience, quite dualistic. Uh, and, and while there can be lots of meaning in that, and I don't want to knock those churches, mm -hmm. for churches that don't have that theology, there's there's this this kind of, I don't know, disconnect between what happens in worship and what we believe. I, I hear people again and again saying the songs we sing contradict the messages that the pastor is preaching or what what I hear from the pastor from the pulpit is not what I hear the pastor talking about in other situations. And mm -hmm. pastors who said to me, I could never preach what I actually believe because I'd empty my church. And so mm -hmm. there's this kind of the shaping of worship around a fairly conservative theological framework. Mm -hmm. uh, and yet progressive churches are desperate for a worship that has the same sense of energy and life and inspiration but with a deep theology that you would get in in, in maybe some, some other churches. So that interface for me, that that's, and I, you know, I mentioned to you before we started this recording that I read an article years ago about somebody who said that when they go to a conservative church, they love the worship because it's so inspiring, but the theology makes their hair stand on end. And, and when he goes to a, a, a church that, that's, that's progressive and, and usually more mainstream, the theology is great, but the worship is dead boring. Mm -hmm. uh, and mm -hmm. looking for something that did both and how that inspired my work how do we yeah. face that challenge? What 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 are your responses to that challenge? Um, and what would you see as the biggest struggles facing progressive churches mm. in the space of ritual, worship, sacraments? Well, that's very well put, John. And I would say, let me just start with a really like basic thing, and that is that I think the biggest challenge facing progressive mainline churches is the belief that they can't have the effervescence that people experience in other kinds of styles, or that that's the only style yeah. that that contains effervescence, right? Right. So I'm using this uh, Durkheim's collective effervescence um, term to describe the kind of um, feeling that we have in uh, in, in group bodies that are uh, participating together um, in things that raise and elevate that sense of oneness. And there's neurological kinds of explanations for this. I'm kind of a neurology geek around ritual, but uh, but it is about creating something that's less didactic, or at least parts of it that are less didactic and more concerned with connecting as a group body. And I think there are many ways to do that, um, no matter what your theology is. Right. But I think that we've got into these stereotypical forms, and uh, and you you don't know 
how to do what you can't imagine. And so partly what I have tried to do is to model what does it look like to have collective effervescence in worship that also has a very justice-oriented, progressive, inclusive message. Mm -hmm. um, I just led worship at a women's retreat, about 250 people. Mm -hmm. And of course, it, they had put their an this annual retreat on hold for three years. This was their first time back together. And I said to them the first night, you know, we, we started with a chant that we could improvise with, right? That grew, that I, a chant is great, a short chant, because the, you can teach it to people, they can learn it quickly. And then we can do things like rounds and cannons and improvise with it and have one part of the group keeping like a drone going and then singing over the top of it. And it's like this, it's this yummy feeling of we just created something together. Right. And the song itself, the chant itself, very progressive, sort of gathered here in the mystery of this hour, gathered here in one strong body, gathered here in the struggle and the power, spirit drawn near. Right. And then we got to just play with that. And so, in some ways, it's about training <laughs> ritual leaders, uh, musicians to get out of the box of, I'm going to lead this four stanza hymn. <laughs> And learn a repertoire, an expanded repertoire, especially I'm just focusing on music at the moment, yeah. uh, but that's that's your example is probably very much based on that. Um, but I said to this group, I said, oh my gosh, at the end of it, we just, we like soaked it in. We just like, oh my gosh, what just happened? Mm -hmm. And then I said, that is our collective effervescence that we have been missing for three years. Mm -hmm. And it's such an important part of being human, this feeling of connection with other people. And that's that thing that like singing together and 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 so we can do that. We can absolutely do that. We can create and design ritual experiences. And I use ritual and worship interchangeably. So I'm not using it. I always have to say this because oftentimes people have stereotyped this word ritual as like the the uh, sort of the rites or the very sort of, um, you know, they relegate it to just certain things, but ritualizing is what we're doing in worship. It's also what we're doing in the coffee that we drink every morning. It's what we're doing, you know, in the ways that we order and pattern our lives. So it, it's a much broader definition in the way I use it, but we can do this. We just have to continue training folks uh, expanding our repertoire, understanding how we bring that effervescence to our worship. And effervescence can be a heightening, but it can also be a deepening. Yes. You know, so another time in this retreat, we sang a, another refrain over and over that just took us deeper and deeper. Hmm. And that's really what, okay, I'm going to get into just a very brief music theory in terms of liturgical music. And that is we have sequential hymns, right? The four stanza hymns. Then we have cyclical songs, which are like these refrains. And then we have a combination of those, you know, hymns that have verses and refrains. And they all have a different purpose. So if all we do is sequential hymns, we get great theology, perhaps, if it's, you know, it's hymns we've picked for its theology, but we don't get the kind of heightening or deepening because it is 
uh, very much a cognitive exercise in some ways, besides musical. But in these um, cyclical examples, that's its purpose is more about heightening or or deepening, you know, effervescence or quiescence, quiescence, I think that's the word. Um, And so we have to pay attention to these dynamics. And that's what, when the getting gets good, right? Um, When we expand our repertoire and understand the purpose of what we're doing in every moment of that, of that ritualizing. Wow. So, so three things kind of stood out for me in what you were saying, and I hope I'm going to remember them all. Uh, I have a horrible habit of saying three things and I get to number two. And <laughs> so, uh, I get it. So I'll, I'll mention them now and then hopefully okay. you come back to them. So the I'll first, try to remember them. I just want to chat a little bit about our fear of, of emotionalism. Yeah, yeah. And talk a bit about that. Uh, the, the second thing I wanted to talk about um, was to ask the question about the extent to which most church leaders are, are even made aware in any way of, of the, 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 the life-changing power, if you like, of ritualizing. That what mm-hmm. we're doing is not just gathering for a ritual that belongs on Sunday, but we're actually mm-hmm. doing something that impacts how we live from Monday to Saturday. So I'd like to talk a little bit yeah, about yeah, that. Yeah. Uh, and then the 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 third one, um, uh, that's the one that slipped out of my head. And that was the the, the one that just recently <laughs> came out of what you were saying. Uh, uh, effervescence, quiescence. Uh, you'll think of it. I'll think of it. Um, I'll, yeah. I'll, I'll let it kind of sit in the back of my mind. And but let, let's start with those two. So one of my questions was we when you were talking about how um, we we can't picture this idea of progressive theology being expressed in effervescence. Hmm. Do you think that there is in progressive churches a a fear of of effervescence because it feels like it could be emotionally manipulative, it could fall into emotionalism? We we love working from our heads. We love the logic of that. We love the theology of that. But we're a little nervous when that gets laid aside and the heart takes over. We don't trust that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Do you think that might impact some of some of? Absolutely. Oh my gosh, you've hit the nail on the head. And really, uh, it's the enlightenment problem, right? And it's the it's it's the Descartes error. Um, you know it. And what's I, I'm going to go back to neuroscience here, hmm. because you know Descartes error is thinking that the mind and the emotions are somehow working separately. And they're absolutely not. You don't have a thought without an emotion attached to it. Right. That's that's in neuroscience, right? So the idea that we could separate those things is false. Mm. Um, we can bore ourselves to death <laughs> you know, to the point where we don't have vital emotions. But dynamics, dynamics was the third point. You've just you've just hit okay. it. So okay, good. Up. Write that down. Um, uh, so. So absolutely, that is one of the problems. And I will tell you that in, um, I have often used a beautiful song called Shepherd Me, O God, uh, in, a, in workshops. And I invite people to, there's verses that I sing as a solo and they come in on the refrains. And in the midst of it, I have them whisper aloud the 23rd Psalm on their own, in their own rhythm. So what you hear all over the room is, you know, it's just gorgeous, just gorgeous. 
And because I invite them as we, before we begin to sing even, I invite them to imagine themselves at their favorite body of water. And then to imagine someone with them, perhaps someone they've been missing, someone that they are you know, needing to pray for, that kind of thing. I invite that, so kind of in a visualization. So by the time we get done with this lovely experience, people are having emotions, right? <laughs> um, and so I always, as we analyze it, because that's what I do in a workshop, we do something that's worshipful, uh, and then we analyze what happened. Always have someone say, "What's? how is that not manipulative, mm. right? And I know that when that question comes out, it is the fear of emotions and the role of emotions in our ritualizing. And so for me, the difference between something that's manipulative and not is the ritual artist's uh, intention for an end result. So I think about, you know, I grew up in a United Methodist Church, uh, progressive, uh, but in a rural, uh, progressive United Methodist Church, very blessed in that way. And I went with friends one time when I was a kid to their revival at a not so progressive church. And um, and so I experienced this thing where we were singing and singing until people came up for the altar call, right? And I experienced this pastor looking right at, this revival leader looking right at me and saying, every head bowed and every eye closed. And I was a shy kid. But at that moment, I crossed my arms and I just looked right back at I don't know where it came from, but I remember that. So I have this visceral memory of what it feels like to be manipulated. And I know his intention for me personally in that moment was for me to comply and then to respond in the way that he had orchestrated. So that's obvious manipulation to me. To create a moment or to create a container in which people can have full emotions, I don't believe is manipulative. And that's the structure that I described in that, in that time, which was to invite people to their own memories, right? Come up with your own memory, your own person you want to pray for. Here's this lovely song that is the 23rd Psalm. Uh, you know, the verses are the 23rd Psalm, but differently. And then you get to whisper aloud the 23rd Psalm in the midst of it. And that whispering keeps it intimate. And yet it's a community experience. Right. You're having a personal and communal experience at the same time. That's a container. Right. What you experience in that, I cannot control. And I don't plan to control that. Yeah. yeah. I just want you to have that because there are so few ways that we get to have a curated experience that allows us access to the deepest things we know. Yeah. Movies do that for us. Yeah. Now, these same people who worry about manipulation and worship probably wouldn't have a problem with going to a movie and in the movie making it, you know, yeah. it, them ending up crying at the movie. Right. right. right? And, and worship and ritualizing is storytelling. Exactly. You just created a story. Right. But it's connected to a scripture, it's connected to the singing, it's connected to the memory, the visualization. Um, so yeah, this is, but but your point about the fear of that, and so we're going to be as didactic as possible so we don't get close to our emotions. Yeah. That is absolutely, I think it's a false uh, belief 
that if we have moments like that in worship, that we can't also have moments where we're picking apart a scripture and analyzing and getting new uh, ahas about how that relates to our life and making the world a better place. They yeah. can coexist Absolutely. easily. And, and, easily. And there's, there's a sense, I mean, the other false assumption we make is that in, it's only emotions that can manipulate us. Right. You know, a, 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 a good public speaker, speak a good rhetoric can manipulate your mind as easily right. as, as a, an artist can That's manipulate right. your emotions. So you can be manipulated in both places. And I think your point about the intention is so important. The, the words that were coming to my mind is, 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 is it's, it's how we handle the power dynamic of that. Because right. as, a, as a ritual leader or as a preacher, we're in a place of, of power. We, we, right. we've, been, we've been given this power, which we can abuse. Mm -hmm. We can mm -hmm. use it as, as a power over, and we can command and demand and dominate. We right. can use it as what I would call power under, which is that manipulative thing where I'm looking ever so humble and I'm looking like I'm serving you, but actually what I'm doing is I'm pulling the levers behind and, and, and manipulating you. Or we can do a collaborative power with, a power sharing, which is what creating a, a container is. It's, it's, it's moving out of that central role and giving space for people to do their own work in a curated environment, but it's yes. a power sharing and, and you can't manipulate people when you're sharing power. That's right. And, and so, yeah, there was some of the things that beautifully came said, yeah, I, I think that's absolutely right. That's as much uh, true as a preacher as it is for a, a ritual artist, I think. That's right. That's right. And yeah, manipulation can happen in many ways. Yeah. Um, and that, that can be in a, a, a beautifully, constructed seemingly logical way of thinking that is completely um uh you know not just yeah. you know i mean yeah. people have been doing that for a, forever yeah um so yeah it's it we really have to get out of this sort of dichotomy of um you know justice oriented progressive ritualizing is going to be very heady yeah all the time right we are going to use our heads because we're not going to check our minds at the door yeah but we also you know going back to that idea that that thoughts and emotions are connected emotions are also the seat of motivation yes and if we divorce emotions from our ritualizing we we are not going to access what is actually quite an incredible tool for motivation for the hard work of creating a more just world this ain't easy yeah. right yeah. and so if we divorce ourselves from our emotions it's going to be even harder yeah because that motivation that that fire to make the the world a better place or that pathos yeah right yeah. we need that yeah. we absolutely need that and ritualizing is that container one of the containers. I don't think it's the only way, but it is a very, I mean, that's what we're talking about today, exactly. what we're in, called into, and that is ritualizing. And so understanding the nature of those containers and how to bring out the best in that yeah. in order to form, as you say, disciples, yeah. to be agents of justice in the world. Yeah. Um, I always say ritual does form us the question is, to what are we being formed? Right. Right? 
the, the way I phrase that is your worship defines your life yeah. or how, how you worship defines how you live. Yeah. Uh, because we all worship something, right? Yeah, whether, we're, whether we're in the church or in a religious environment, right. we're all worshiping something. Uh, right. We're all ritualizing around that thing we worship. Right. James Smith, of course, in his books, talks wonderfully about uh, the way he exegetes cultural liturgies uh, mm-hmm. and how things like the shopping mall or the sports field, the, the, the political arena, the, these things are places of ritual. Uh, these right. are places of worship and they're, and they're shaping our lives. Uh, and that's that's what that's what ritual does and and you leave emotion out of that well we're getting misshapen we're getting malformed yeah 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 uh you mentioned an author i'll mention another one um david kurtzer wrote ritual politics and power and I, i i teach a ritual studies course and i'm teaching it this semester and um i I bring Kurtzer in about four or five weeks into the semester because he's so good at opening our eyes at the formative power of ritual and the possibility that it does manipulate um, in that, you know, it can do that. Um, Because I, I don't want my students to be just like enamored with ritual so much that they're not discerning some of the ways that it can be misused and abused. Um, so yeah, it's really, really important for us to know more yeah. about, you know, one 45 minute class is not gonna cut it. One semester is not gonna cut it as we as we train folks. Um, and I think that's why you and I both train folks post seminary, post, you know, official training because uh, there is a gap there, and and we want people to understand how to understand it better, but also then how to to do it better, so that we 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 do get the results that we hope for, and that is uh, an animated faith yeah. that draws us into the world. Yeah, I mean, historically, I mean, you can go back over any 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 protest i can think about the civil rights movement in the us mm-hmm. i'm thinking about the struggle in south africa um mm-hmm. people in the struggle in south africa we have a word i don't know if you've come come across it it's the, it's the word doi doi t o y i t o y i doi doi and 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 when people protest in africa there's dancing there's singing uh, there's movement there, there, there's often rhetoric as well but yeah. it's it's these it's it's a it's a, a tremendously moving can't can even be a frightening thing to watch people en masse coming down the road not marching but dancing and yes, that's right. in the harmony that's right. that, I don't know yes. somehow only Africa seems to be able to do but right. uh, there's there's something phenomenal about that and and without the emotional energy of that mm-hmm, mm-hmm. those protests wouldn't get anywhere that's the, right the apartheid government would not have been overthrown unless there was a massive amount of emotional energy. Yes, intellectual energy was there, but the emotional yeah. energy as well. And the ritualizing that went with that. Because yes. the, the toy toy is a ritual, actually. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah, the actual coming together to be together in the streets is ritualizing. Right. And uh, that, again, that collective effervescence, that knowing that you are not alone in the struggle. Yes. So there's that personal piece of it that you get from that connection. 
but also like you said seeing the mass come down the you know in that kind of energy that it will not be denied uh that's also part of it yeah absolutely you know i use that example um when i'm talking about dynamics and energy um there's a uh, my dissertation was about dynamics four kind of basic patterns of dynamics and one of them is is that dynamic that is that you know change the world kind of feel and uh i used the example of siahamba Mm -hmm. right in in, uh anti-apartheid uh protests and then you know the way that in sometimes in the u.s lily white choirs will sing we are singing in the light of god you know (laughs) it's like we've we need the story with the music to remember and to honor the kind of power, the kind of of courage that that contained and not to literally whitewash it um, in a way. Yeah. Yeah. So let me skip over my number two, because I think it'll come best at the end. You mentioned dynamics again here. Yeah. And I think let, let's let's go there for a moment, Marsha. Okay. Uh, because one of the one of the challenges I think we find in, in particularly in progressive worship is 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 a lack of dynamics in a worship service. I, I don't know if you experience that, but certainly from my perspective, there's often this experience where you you come in and things are very measured and very quiet mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. very intellectual. Uh, and yes, we may have an organ, and 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 you know if the organ is played well, it, it can lift the ceiling. But we're often not too sure we want to do too much of that, and everything is done with such decorum. And and from beginning to end, there's hardly a shift in dynamics. Uh, I, I remember I, when I when I when I talk about crafting uh, uh, what what I would call an order of service or a worship flow or the worship journey, mm-hmm. I often used to say to people do yourself a favor and actually create a graph. Yeah. Uh, and, yeah. and, you know, the, 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 what's that? The X. Like a heart monitor. Yeah. Well, you know, along, along the bottom, you talk about the time of the service from start to finish. <clears throat> and yeah. here is what, what I, I, I used to use the word intensity because mm-hmm. I, I, I don't really know what other word to use, but you know, the bottom would be sort of quiet and deep at the top mm-hmm. is more maybe effervescent, loud, noisy, mm-hmm. celebratory, Mm-hmm. And you're moving between those. And, you know, yes, there may be some times where it's appropriate to stay quiet and deep the whole way through. There may be some times where it's appropriate to stay quiet, you know, loud and boisterous the whole way through. But most of the time we want to be moving through those dynamics in a yeah. meaningful way. Uh, mm-hmm. So the people have a sense that, they, that they're going on a journey, that they've started somewhere, they've been through a journey, and or, 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 or they've, they've been participating in, in a story maybe is the way to phrase it you've used that word a lot Mm -hmm. that's one i use a lot as well uh and then and then they've they've got somewhere at the end but that it's also gives them the sense the story's not finished and so they're they're Mm -hmm. going out of this moment into a continuation of the story in the rest of the week but 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 it takes it takes planning and careful thinking to to create those dynamics um you know you, you you talk in in your book how to think like a filmmaker which i loved about the way script writers work and the different narrative arcs of mm-hmm. an episode versus a season versus a, an entire mm-hmm. show. 
um, mm -hmm. and, and all of those different narrative arcs, that doesn't happen by accident for scriptwriters, right. those in movies. Yeah. So every bit of that is so carefully craft. crafted. Mm -hmm. and, and and that's what ritual artists are called to bring into the worship space. Right. Yeah. And yet we so often miss that. So yeah. what's your response yeah. to that be? I mean, how, how do you work with those kinds of dynamics? How do you mm -hmm. use dynamics to help create yeah. that container mm -hmm. and then also enable people to go on that journey where, where, where they actually can feel that something has shifted in them? Yes. Well, um, so... <laughs> That's my favorite topic. Oh, wonderful. <laughs> so, um, so what you're describing, this sort of methodical kind of, um, you know, I, I was asked long ago, a reporter asked me, what do you think is the biggest problem with worship in our day? You know, it's like, oh, uh, <laughs> but I said, it just popped out of my mouth and, I, and it made sense to me. And then therefore it became a really uh, major motivator for me to be able to talk more about it. And that is worship that is flatlined, right. right? So like the heart monitor and worship that is flatlined. In other words, monotony comes in many forms. And I used the word boring earlier. And usually I need to unpack that because people will assign certain styles of worship as boring or not boring, right? right. So I have seen boring in every style. Right. Let's just say that. Yeah. Uh, it's really about monotony. Right. And any style of worship when it gets monotonous, can flatline, right. no matter what level of dynamics you're at. Mm. Mm. And so what you're describing as methodical is actually, it actually is a dynamic. So it's not, I, I try to get people out of saying, well, this was dynamic and this was not dynamic. Mm. It's just different intensities, right? Mm. To use your word, mm. it's different dynamics. Mm. And there is a place for all of it. Right. Um, and there are two ways where we need diversity of dynamics. One is within a service, but also within that larger story arc that is the liturgical year. Right. So, for instance, during Lent, we are going to have a dynamic that is perhaps a, a, a different feel or ethos, we can use that word, than the Easter season, mm. right, that follows it. Yeah. Because theologically, they fundamentally have different ways of being in our bodies and ways of expressing ourselves, different parts of the story. Right. And so in order to tease out the, the, the rich theology that is the liturgical year, we have to imagine that the congregation will feel different yeah. in Lent than it will in the Easter season yeah. and, and across the year. Yeah. So... There's the shorter arc, which is the, the worship service itself. It might even be a season itself. And then the, the larger arc of the whole liturgical year, the whole narrative. Um, so the dynamics, uh, you know, when we begin to see that there are various dynamics and they're not just two, I did mention the most commonly held uh, thoughts about dynamics and that is effervescence or, you know, big, kind of, uh, and the more quiescent, the more sedate, the more contemplative, but there's actually more than that. Mm -hmm. And these dynamics can, uh, you know, in the research I did, and it's based out of kinesiology, which is based on the way our bodies actually work, right. um, that we have different energies and yes, we can have that, that dynamic, get her done, justice oriented, get out in the streets, kind of thrust dynamic, 
but we can also have what's called a swing dynamic. And that is that sense of energy that is connecting, yeah. right? That is, that wants connection, that's going back and forth. That's, um, you know, this is worship in the U.S. anyway, Um you know, jazz has brought us some swing. Um, uh, the contemporary worship movement, in its in in some of its more personal theology, brought us mm. some of that. Mm. Uh, and in the ways that it's, you know, the sort of love song is the, the typical swing kind of dynamic. Um, but too much of a good thing is still too much, right? So any one of these things can become monotonous and then we lose, we turn it off. Our brains are so talented that we can actually turn it off because we think, oh, been there, done that, don't need to process that anymore. Right. There's also the a kind of shape feel, which is that we, you know, uh, sort of more what you might be calling methodical. So it's it's exacting, it's precise, it's canonical language, if we talk about language styles. And shape can give us that theological sense of the God who is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And that's an important piece, mm. but it's not the only piece. Right. right. And then there's the very contemplative, what, what I call in, dy in dynamics, a hang kind of feel. Mm. And that is that sort of meandering or that that um, contemplative sing until it just feels right to stop, not sing three times, right? right. You know, and then stop. It's a much more open kind of uh, just sensing the moment in a very deep, that's that still small voice of God, right? Each of these has these theological grounding, each of these dynamics. Mm -hmm. And the important reason to bring all of those in it's not as if every service is going to have equal measures of everything. Right. It depends on the theme. It depends on the lesson. It depends on the time of the liturgical year, what of those things are going to be dominant, but they're not going to be dominant to the exclusion of all else. Right. right? It, it, it's This stuff is so yummy. Once you like d dig into it, dive into it and you say, oh, let's look at it from all of these angles. Yeah. Um, and then we can really see, you know, there's a spiritual purpose and there's, there really is kind of a a progress a, a justice purpose to each right. one of these as well, right. right? It's not that the go get them, change the world energy is the only one related to justice. Right. There's also contemplative ways that we bring justice into the world. There's also connecting ways that we bring it into the world. And there's also the ordering of that shaping energy that's also really important right. in making the world a better place. So um, you know, we, we are so quick to dichotomize and to categorize and then to say this equals this and then, and then cut ourselves off from, from a much more expressive, yeah. um, complex way of thinking. Yeah. If that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. It's so exciting. Um, and, and, you know, you talk about the, the service versus the year and there's a sense in which, you know, as you say, you know, Advent, Lent, Christmas, they, they all have a different feel. But it's yeah. not like every Sunday in Advent is going to have the same feel. There are dynamics <laughs> within right, right. Lent bandwidth, if you like, that right, we can play right. with as well and still keep in that space, in that collective yeah. dynamic, mm -hmm. if you like, of the journey. But there's right. movement there. And, and on the other side of it is, you know, swinging through the dynamics too much becomes bipolar. Uh, yeah, right. And that's not going to yeah. be 
either. So it has or whiplash or yeah. 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 So, so there has to be thoughtfulness to it. There has right, to be right. a sensitivity to it. Um, mm -hmm. It's not just dynamics for dynamics sake or, or changing of dynamics for, for the, or, right. you know, okay, we're going to do something boisterous. So we now have to go to the, the greatest extreme of boisterosity, <laughs> whatever the word is that we can. <laughs> boisterosity. I love that. <laughs> Sorry. I do have a tendency okay. to make up words sometimes. Uh, <laughs> So it's all of that is at play. Yeah. And I think that can be overwhelming for people. Mm -hmm. But but, but I, I think I think the word play is one we don't use enough when we talk about ritual and worship. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And and I think one of the things you do so well, as I've experienced your work, is that you invite people into the ritual space as a space of play. Yeah. And, yeah. and kind of don't worry too much. I mean, yes, obviously there's stuff you can do that can be harmful. And we've spoken about manipulation and things like that that you want to avoid. But there is a sense when you can come in and and you don't have to be bound too much by rules, although good play mm -hmm. also does have boundaries and rules. But but there's a sense of, of of experiment. Try stuff out. See what works. You know, if it doesn't work this week, we go, okay, well, sorry, folks. We'll try again next Sunday and hopefully do a bit better based on the lessons we've learned. Right. And, and yeah. so there's a freedom there. And, and perhaps because of, that very intellectual cognitive approach that we've got we're a little nervous of experimentation and making mistakes and and allowing things to be a, a little different and chaotic wow. uh, and yeah so and and i think that you're making so many good points about uh, about change and flexibility within liturgy right so oh, scary <laughs> thing right um and and I think I employ a couple of things in my design work that acknowledges this. And that is any one liturgical season that I am designing is going to have a feel or an ethos, right? It's gonna have, it, it might be something like, um, you know, I have a series called Busy, Reconnecting with an Unhurried God. Well, the ethos of that is going to be, let's slow down a little bit, right? So so we're not going to pack it full. We're not going to pack that worship service full of busyness yeah. because the, the main message is slow down. make some space, right? So we're going to make some space in this particular series right? because the form of it then is part of the message, right? right? Um, and so we're going to employ things like perhaps we're going to spend more time in silence, but we're going to talk about why we're spending more time in silence, right? It's going to be part of the message. Maybe we're going to sing more songs that are slower or more spacious. Mm -hmm. And then we're going to repeat those structures throughout the season so that, yeah, the first week, if it's something we've never done before, that's going to feel awkward because the first time we get on a bike, it's awkward. But if we never get on a bike ever again, because it felt awkward, we never learned to ride. And so we repeat, right? And so if we do some things that are different, but we repeat them through a season, then we begin to get this inherent flexibility muscles in our community. And play and improvisation becomes easier because we begin to trust our leadership Right. That they will guide us and allow us to become more comfortable with this thing that feels awkward at first. Mm -hmm. um, there's a, a series that I did in the last year that's about change. And change is so scary that I made the ethos of the series 
playful. And the theme song says, change is good, you go first, da-da-da. You know, it's like this little ragtime thing that kind of pokes fun at our discomfort about change because that's the way we can enter into these scary things. Right. So that's a completely different ethos. Right. And we use Play-Doh, right? We're playing because we're dealing with a really hard subject that's right. very scary. So these are some of the, I mean, this is why being a ritual artist is so much fun because you get to sort of make these design choices, these artistry choices that help us to speak about those deep things, to get at those, those spiritual issues that do make a difference for our lives the rest of the week, the rest of our lives. And we do it in a way where we allow the ritual forms to help us. Exactly. to do it yeah um i have um, no i cannot remember what your question was but i hope that <laughs> yeah i think i think i think you responded to it so well uh, yeah and, and and i like where you've landed at the end of that because i, I was mm -hmm. going to say you know let's not talk about this thing because the, the the challenge i think often of ritual artistry is that 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 the, the worship space becomes an experience that becomes addictive mm -hmm. and, and 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 we we can fall into this this dynamic where we we're there because we need the buzz we need the, the mm -hmm. fix and then we go out into the rest of our week and the fix carries us for a while and then the next week we we run dry and we, we need a we need a new shot and but in between it's not impacting our lives at all. Yeah. So yeah. how do we that, how do we do yeah. this? So yeah. that we, we're creating all of this. We're, we're you know we're, we're giving people that container. We're allowing them mm -hmm. to bring them whole their, their whole mm -hmm. selves, body, heart, mind, spirit, all of it into that experience. They are hopefully getting aha moments and 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 processing things they need to process. But when they step out of the sanctuary and back into the rest of their lives. What do you do or, or, or what is your thinking around how we give people stuff to take with them so that it actually does make an impact on their relationships at home, on what's happening right. at work, right. on the greater social issues of our, our neighborhood, our country, our time? Right. Yeah, and, and that's such a great question. And that's why it can't just be about dynamics. It has to be about symbols. And so that's why I say worship must be meaningful and memorable, mm. right? It can be meaningful in the moment, mm. but if it's not memorable and doesn't, so Kurtzer, this, this author that wrote Ritual Politics and Power, uses a, a wonderful theory from cognitive science. Mm -hmm. We think in schemas, right? Our brains are organizing what we know into frameworks. It's right. another way to say schemas, right? Into frameworks. And we can only really see what we have a framework for. Right. I mean, it's this bizarre thing. Like, like it, it's what happens when you hear a word that you've never heard before and you go, oh my gosh, I've never heard that before. And then you hear it two more times, like in the, in the, the rest of the day and you go, right. oh my gosh, because now you have a framework. Now you have, so you're seeing it, you're hearing it, you're recognizing it. So what I do in my worship design is I create frameworks of meaning. 
And frameworks of meaning need really, really good symbols. Tangible, visual, I mean, symbols can be verbal, visual, kinesthetic, they can be many things, but we need symbols and symbols are by definition, ordinary things that point to extraordinary realities, right? So always remembering to connect what we do in our rituals, in our liturgy, with ordinary things that then are part of our ordinary lives. So that we create frameworks of meaning so that when we encounter these frameworks in our ordinary lives, it's tied to the meaning that we made in the ritual, right? So the first, one of the very first things I do when I come up with, okay, here's a message I think we need for this, this year, this, this year in Advent, right? I say, okay, how does this manifest itself in our lives? What are the, what are the main symbol systems that we can connect? So I'm going to use uh, my Advent series, uh, not this last one, but the one before. And I called it The Inn, Housing the Holy. And I did this out of, I had done some, uh, some research um, with a Lily Grant about churches who were doing extraordinarily entrepreneurial things with their properties to serve their neighborhoods. And I was so inspired by these interviews that I did with these churches that I thought the world, I need to make an Advent series out of this um, because I want to highlight, because for many churches at post-pandemic, we realized, oh, the church is not the building, but we have this building and we're paying for this building. This building is our greatest asset, but what are we doing with it, right? So I wanted to highlight that. And so part of the Advent Christmas story is that in, right? whatever that really was, we don't know, but, but the end, the, the image of the end, and then housing the holy, understanding that, okay, our churches may feel like the barn. <laughs> we may feel like the barn, but it can still house the holy in important ways, just like this narrative of ours. So the barn, but more concretely, what is in our lives that would evoke this message every time we saw it, and that is the barn door. Mm. And so within the liturgy, I talked about doors. I talked about opening the doors of our heart. Mm. I talked about, um, I used, uh, uh, I commissioned a song by a wonderful artist where the word stable was used in two ways, right? A stable place, but a stable, right? So so this whole word play and but that door and so churches had a barn door as part of their in the midst of all their christmas you know advent christmas stuff mm. churches incorporated a barn door people took their christmas card pictures in front of the barn door you know but every time you saw a door in the world it connects back to that message yes. opening the doors of our heart opening the doors hospitality, serving our neighborhood, being, you know, making our neighborhoods better. So this is the way that I think that I know that our liturgies can connect to the rest of our life when we have this symbol system, this framework, this frame of reference that can then carry out throughout. And, and our brains are amazing. They love symbols. They yeah. love them. 
And they start to notice things, you know, because you've got this framework and your liturgy has talked about doors and, and doorways, and, you know, and then you start to see that everywhere in the world. Yeah. Um, so that's the, that's the way I do that. That's the way that my research into cognitive science and understanding how that works for us, how making meaning and making memory works. Mm. And so I, that's, that's one of the techniques that I use in my design work that I think really, and, and, and by all accounts, uh, feedback, it does its job. Yeah. It really does its job. Well, th th I mean, that's the principle of the sacraments, isn't right. it? You know, bread and wine, exactly. every day, remember me. Now, every time you sit around a meal table, right. Christ is, is there, is remembered. Right. We, washing, every time you you wash your right. hands. And I know I've done that in many rituals where, uh, I, I don't know if it's the same in the States, but in South Africa, people sometimes get a little awkward and uncomfortable around foot washing. About the feet thing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but hand washing is is, is often yeah. Yeah, yeah. connect that hand washing with remembering baptism. Right. And and then every time you wash your hands, it's a it's a kind of baptismal moment again. Yeah. That's, that's but we have to as ritual leaders, we have to keep making those connections. Exactly. And if eating and washing are the only symbols we use in our worship, then they become monotony comes in many forms, right? right. They become as monotonous as say a dynamic of music or a you know, a certain way of doing something all the time. Right. So these bringing in these other ordinary objects alongside these traditional mm -hmm. things mm -hmm. is a way of waking us up, mm -hmm. um, but constantly making that connection. I remember, you know, during the lockdown, the, the Holy Week, the very first Holy Week during lockdown, um, my partner is a pastor and we, she did a sermon at the kitchen sink, at our kitchen sink, you know, in the kitchen, talking about and prepared a meal as she was preaching, and then washed and invited people to go to the sink and wash their hands. So for all of the agony of the lockdown and of that time period, it also woke us up to some very, some ways that we can connect the very, our very ordinary lives and our homes, Yeah, our our environments outside of the sanctuary, how those are also sanctuaries. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. Wow, Marsha, this has been so rich. It's amazing. Um, we're going to have to start wrapping it up. Sure. Uh, I, I don't want to finish this, though, without just giving you a chance. You've just written an article. You sent, you sent me a copy, Metamorphosis Moment, Ritual Artistry and the Work of the People. Uh, yeah. I know you're going to give me a link that I'll put in the description so people can access a version of that article that you are allowed to share. Uh, mm -hmm. So people want to go and check it out, but I'd love to give you a chance just to maybe the highlights of that article, yeah. why you wrote it, anything you want to say around that. I'd love to hear that. Sure. Thank you. Well, I've been talking about this moment sort of post-ish uh, pandemic as a metamorphosis moment um, for about a year or so. And I really, you know, the, the metaphor <laughs> really works because I think we feel like we're, we're, um, we're kind of goo at the moment. We're not sure what the next chapter looks like because we had so many shifts in our, um, in our rhythms, so many shifts that we're still trying to unpack and understand. 
And so one of the things that I think was is so compelling about the process of metamorphosis is that the caterpillar actually has what's called imaginal disks inside of it. And these are bits of DNA, globules of DNA that don't do anything in the caterpillar, but once it's in the cocoon and things are disintegrating around it, these imaginal disks start to, to come alive and they are the what becomes the butterfly. So I believe that we have inside of us some ritual knowledge, some ritual artistry that will help us navigate whatever is to come for the church. I think that ritualizing, making meaning is so deep within us as humans. And I talk about this in the article that that will not go away. But we as ritual artists must, as we have throughout time, reconfigure the ways that we make meaning and make that accessible to others and lead others in making meaning. And so I give some examples of how I think we're, we can, you know, hopeful things that we can think about as we move through this goo moment <laughs> where we're not sure. And in the end, I think the it, it's just, I have great hope that whatever configuration the church takes in the future, we will always need leaders um, and, and communities that are making meaning together. That will never change. Right. And so to, to understand that ritual artistry is about finding those ways, nurturing those ways, making those containers, the containers may look different, but nonetheless, we need those containers. And so, uh, especially these days, I think there's so many people who are not finding spiritual nurture in the church that there it's an important time for us, especially those of us who consider ourselves ritual artists to, to be examining and improvising and playing with what containers can uh, can we offer to people, um, no matter whether they're connected to church organizations or not? And John, you've been you know doing so much of that, um, and I commend you for that. And I pray that you'll keep going. But you know, I I, I thank you for this for this time of talking. Um, I really feel so um, so glad that we've had this. Probably, I think it's probably been a couple of well, may at least 15 years that we've been in conversation. Someday we will get to be physically together and, uh, and, and doing this. But thank you for the opportunity to be in conversation with you. Yeah, thank you for, for your time. Thank you for your, your wisdom, your, your, your enthusiasm, your passion, your creativity. It's been such a gift. I'm, I'm so happy that I can, I can share this with, with the people in, in my network. Yeah, um, yeah. Maybe just as as we close, and I think we're going to have to do this again because I, I I can feel like we could we could do another hour or two of this and we still wouldn't be finished. So we're going to have to do another one at some point. But just to to wrap up, to give you a chance, where can people find you? How can they connect with you if they want to? And obviously, we'll put all those details in the descriptions as well. But yeah, yeah. yeah. So worshipdesignstudio.com is where you can um, get a first glance at what what Worship Design Studio does, and it's part education, part resources. We create worship series. We've been doing it for many years now, so we have 70-plus worship series for every part of the liturgical year, lectionary, non-lectionary, um, and, and it's a community. We're now on a social platform. 
so it's a community of people who are collaborating together and giving each other support. Um, so that's a place you can also go to marshamcfee.com and learn various things that I'm doing. I am now uh, have something called spiritual care adventures and it's travel. Um, I take groups of people on uh, meaningful travel. So there's that as well. So it's, you know, it's a good time to be, um, to be doing this and finding meaning in many different ways. Wonderful. Marsha, thank you so much. And uh, yeah, just thank you for the work that you do and the impact it makes on the church and on people's lives. It certainly has impacted me tremendously deeply. Uh, you've given lots of ideas that I'm going to be stealing for some of my resources out of this, <laughs> even this conversation. So th thank you for that. And uh, yeah, yeah may, may, may you continue to experience a sense of, and I, I, don't, I don't say blessing easily, but mm. I, I wish that for you, a sense of, of blessing mm. on the work that you do. And, and thanks again so much for your time. Yeah. Thank you, John. Great. Right.